Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Join Tyler and his team as they unlock the secrets to achieving financial independence through wealth building strategies inspired by Robert Kiyosaki and other thought provoking leaders. Learn to build leveraged streams of cash flow that land in your pocket and improve your quality of life. Gain access to cutting-edge ideas that will increase your productivity and streamline your success. Find out how to supercharge your retirement plan so you won't have to retire with a pay cut. You can escape the rat race. Are you ready? It's time to Learn to Earn with Tyler Chef. Welcome to Cashflow Guys Podcast. It's that time again. Today, we are going to talk about contract for deed and a couple other sexy words that investors use. And I say sexy because I'll be honest with you, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. We People get stuck on whatever they've heard on Facebook and then suddenly it becomes the buzzword like subject to. Everybody, I get people running around town going, I'm going to take that property subject to. It doesn't have a mortgage on it. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to take it subject to. What are you talking about subject to? Subject to what? Subject to means you're going to take a property subject to a mortgage. It's like once people understand that they don't need to use their credit for something, they're just they're running around rampant going, I'm going to subject to, I don't need my social security number. It's okay. It doesn't matter that I haven't paid my bills in 10 years, right? Stop it, people. Okay, let's go back to contract for deed. But tell you what spawned this is that I was on Facebook. I'm a member of a Facebook community that's uh, all realtors. In, the, in my market, and in that group, one of the agents asked a question pertaining to contract for deed. Now, specifically, the investor was the investor buyer, and she, apparently the, the, the agent that, that I know is a, a friend of mine, she's a listing agent. She was presented an offer or an opportunity for an offer from an investor, and the investor was requesting to basically acquire the property via contract for deed subject to contract for deed subject to well what's interesting here is that no, nowhere in that conversation did anybody under did anybody talk about does the property even have a mortgage okay first of all so there's no need to go suffer just for clarity there's no need to go subject to on a property that doesn't have a mortgage because and, and i don't know why i can't believe i actually have to explain this on the show but i'm going to explain it anyway when you take a property subject to a mortgage, you're buying, you're taking the deed, putting the deed in your name, and then uh, the mortgage stays in place. So if I'm the owner of the home, in this example, and you're buying the home, and you want to take the property subject to, the mortgage stays in Tyler's name, and then if Tyler was dumb enough to have property in his own name, besides my personal residence, and that's a whole other story, but uh, if I, you would take the property subject to the, the title or the deed would transfer to you and the loan, the mortgage would remain in my name. You're probably asking yourself, who in their right mind would sign on to this? Well, I can't say I disagree. Uh, not a whole lot of people. Uh, it's a strategy that's used amongst honorable people, but it's also a strategy used uh, with some less than honorable people. We talked a little bit about that in a previous episode. Uh, we were talking about uh, subject to with Jonathan Rexpert. Now, Jonathan uses it the right way. He uses it as a way to, to uh, buy real estate, leaving the mortgage in place. He then keeps the real estate 
until he sells the property. And then if he sells the property, he satisfies the mortgage. That's the way it was intended to be done. I'm not going to make this episode about subject two. I just wanted to talk about that. If you got questions on subject two, you want to know more about that, go back to the episode with John Rexford about subject two. And uh, if you go on my website, especially cashflowguys.com, and go do the, the podcast page, and then just search for that episode with John Rexford. He is an expert in the process of subject two. He, he, that episode was really good at walking you through everything uh, on subject two, and so you can get squared away with it. So important episode because there's a lot of things that people don't understand. So that's why I, I would like to see you go back and, and listen to that episode. That will cure any questions, at least it should of anything that you need to know on the concept of subject two. In case you're wanting an episode number, that's episode number 98. Episode number 98. Uh, it was doing deals subject to existing debt with John Rexford. So anyway, carrying on, moving on, we're going to talk about contract for deed. And the difference is, okay, so with contract for deed, the, it is basically a contract, an agreement between a buyer and a seller hey, Mr. Buyer or Mr. Seller, I'm going to buy your property and I'm going to pay you, I don't know, 500 bucks a month, whatever it works out to be. I'm going to pay you 500 bucks a month until paid. And then when I pay, I'm done paying, you're going to then give me the deed. There's nothing wrong with this. It's done all the time. It's a very common transaction. Okay, it happens on a regular basis all across America. And as we dive deeper in the episode here, I'll explain why when people think, I've never heard of that before, I've even got attorneys that never heard of it. Well, that's because they spend too much time in their office buried behind their law books. Attorneys that are actually out representing clients fully understand contract for deed, and it's actually quite common. Some rec- attorneys don't recommend it. Others swear by it. You know, you know what they say about opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. Seek your own legal counsel. Talk to them. See what their opinion is on it. But I don't see anything wrong with it. Okay, so anyway, moving on. The investor was asking for to to acquire the property contract for deed subject to well obviously that investor is confused and so is the agent but that's okay that's not a problem people get confused all the time but this is a classic case of a tongue-twisted newbie investor using language they really don't understand and i want to explain that a little bit you know we like i was saying in the beginning we use these buzzwords like uh, subject to half the time people don't even understand what they're talking about uh, estoppel letter, estoppel agreement. People don't understand what that is. We're going to do an episode on estoppels. Don't worry about it. Uh, we've talked about that before. So if you've listened to the show for any month of time and been paying attention, you should know what an estoppel letter is. It's basically a letter that that dictates how things are supposed to, how things are. In other words, uh, I an estoppel letter for a tenant says that I pay $600 a month rent and then I gave you $500 security deposit when I rented this place. It's, it's a letter that verifies something that's happened in the past or a current agreement that's in place. Anyway, a contract for deed is essentially a lease purchase arrangement where the seller retains the ownership and, uh, and the deed. So they've got the ownership, their name is on the deed, while the buyer makes payments towards the purchase of the property. During the time the payments are being made, the buyer can often receive additional benefits that are not common on a traditional lease agreement. Some of those, and this is just the short list, and this is a very much an it depends thing. Really, it comes down to it's a contract. A contract is a negotiated agreement between two parties. So what works and doesn't work really comes down to the two parties. Whatever the two parties agree to 
provided it is legal and ethical, so be it. You know, you don't really have a problem until somebody complains. So if I say I'm going to paint the house pink and you agree to uh, I can paint the house pink, then I can paint the house pink. And no attorney, no judge is going to say, no, you can't paint the house pink unless an HOA or something like that was to complain about a pink house. I digress. Some of the benefits that are that are available to a buyer slash seller in a in a contract for deed I want to cover here. First of all, the ability to encumber the property with either debt or permits for a buyer. This is a buyer benefit. This can also be work against the buyer. Let me explain. The buyer to the buyer benefit, let's say they want to go take a lien on a, a loan on a property. It can be structured. It is possible, so don't tell me it's not. It can be done. I, I know some attorneys listen to this going. You can't do that in my state. Well, maybe not in your state, but you can in my state. And it comes down to, as long as all parties agree, then we're good to go. Pay your doc stamps. The, the court doesn't care. But the bottom line is, as a buyer, let's say you, you're going to do construction on this property and, and you're going to maybe have a contractor come in and do some repairs for this thing will qualify for financing. There's an example. In that case, there are circumstances where you could encumber a property that you don't own, provided that the seller agrees to that in some sort of contractual arrangement. That's where you get to sit down with your attorney, they sit down with their attorney, and you work it out, right? But there is no requirement for a deed to transfer from one party to another. Now, this is my opinion. This is based on my experience. This is not legal advice for all you attorneys that are getting ready to sue me. Don't worry, I've got everything in the land trust anyway. I'll never find my assets as it is. So go back to doing what you do, whatever that is. But for the rest of you, the ability to encumber property has benefits to the buyer, but it also has negatives to the buyer. Another thing is permits. Sometimes in some municipalities, a buyer can put pull permits on a property they don't yet own if they've got a land contract. Okay, if they've got a land contract. It gives them in some states and under some eyes of the law, some people feel that it gives them equitable interest. This is not true in every state and every municipality. I get that. But in some states and some municipalities, that is the case. So check with your local real estate attorney. Check with your local tax collector's office, the clerk of the courts, whatever, the permit office if you're pulling permits to see if that's some, a way that you could pull permits before you actually own a property. It can be done. The design here, the issue, the reason, the benefit is to give you as a buyer some control over the property before you actually pull the trigger and have your name on the deed. This also gives security to the seller because let's say the seller doesn't really trust you and, and you know, they're a little nervous that you're not going to pay and they're, they're scared of the foreclosure proceeding. Frankly, I would too. In, for, in Florida, it takes years sometimes. In this case, a contract for deed allows you to basically get quote-unquote owner financing, but not really owner financing, but allows you to make payments for the property. The only difference is that the seller holds the deed. So in the event that you don't pay, the seller basically evicts you, just like a, like a, in the lease, that's how it goes in Florida, they would evict you as if you were renting it. So it's basically the same thing as a lease purchase. So in some cases, it's a better way to structure things. That totally depends on what the deal that you're working on, what works best based on what your legal team tells you and what the seller wants to do. It also gives, but here's the other side of this as far as encumbering property. The seller also has the right, unless the contract says otherwise, the contract, remember the deed is still held by the seller. So the seller can technically go out and get another mortgage. Or worse, they could get leaned for something. They got in a car accident, there's a judgment, there's a lien or something. 
those liens can still attach to that property because technically the seller still owns it. So keep that in mind. That's, this is not a fail-safe situation uh, under all circumstances. You have to compare all of the, the, the pros and cons and see if this makes sense for you. And, and more importantly, talk with your attorney and see if it, you know, what the ramifications would be in your area, in your municipality, with your specific deal. Because no, uh, contract for deed is not ideal in every situation. It's not ideal probably in a lot of situations. But it is one of thousands of different ways you can get gain uh, control of a property. In some cases, in some municipalities, it gives you the ability to collect rents from tenants. Sometimes you can't collect rents from tenants unless you technically manage the property, but you can gain the whatever control or legalities that you need in some cases by using contract for deed. It also gives you, in some cases, the legal authority to act on behalf of the owner. Again, all of these things are discussed up front between you and the seller. Okay, so everybody knows what's going on. They should be documented in the lease purchase agreement or in the, the contract for deed arrangement so that everybody's on the up and up. You want to have an attorney review that to make sure your attorney is okay with the way things are worded to make sure that it doesn't disadvantage you or the seller, or if you are the seller, you or the buyer, to just make sure that everybody's on the up and up and everything's the way it should be. Here's another situation. Let's say, for example, the seller, I focus on, let's back up a little bit. I like to buy what's not for sale, first of all. You guys have heard me say that before. I prefer to buy what's not for sale. So you don't really see me spending too much time on the MLS. I do spend time on there, but not a lot. Primarily, most of the stuff that I wind up pulling the trigger on is totally off market. Heck, half the time, nobody even knows it's for sale, including the seller when we buy them. That's how we don't have to negotiate very hard because we're the only ones that know it's for sale. So let's just assume that the seller, for whatever reason, wants to retain his tax benefits for a while. Let's say he's gonna, he wants to sell the property. You guys have had a conversation. He didn't necessarily have it for sale, but he wants to sell it. But he says, now I'll wait, you know, I'm going to wait two years because I really need the depreciation. I need the tax write-offs or whatever the reason may be. And I'll sell it to you then. And let's say in that instance that, well, the market is, I don't know, going up. And you kind of want to lock down today prices. And for whatever reason, maybe the guy won't sign an option agreement for you to exercise an option later. or You decide you don't want to do that. And we'll talk about options on a different episode. But you could use a contract for deed to, to be able to buy the property. So capture today's prices and make payments to the seller for their equity over time. And because the deed is still retained by the seller, you could then, the seller could then legitimately claim the tax advantages from the owning the real estate, even while you're under contract for the deed, because technically the deed is not transferred. The minute the deed transfers, then the seller loses the ability to get reap the tax rewards from owning the real estate. So keep that in mind. And guys, these are only four examples that I can think of off the top of my head. These are four simple examples that may that that could work and could be reasons why you would do a contract for deed. Now again, a contract for deed is an agreement between a buyer and a seller. Say it again. A contract for deed is an agreement between a buyer and a seller on specific terms of a future sale. That's what it's about. Notice I said between buyer and seller. It's not an agreement between the seller and your attorney. 
or the real estate agent gave permission for this deal to happen. None of that's true. All real estate transactions come down to there is a buyer and a seller. Everybody else are counsel, realtors, brokers, whatever they are, mortgage broker. They're all ancillary parts. They're accessories in the transaction. What really matters is the principles of the transaction. And the principles, ladies and gentlemen, are the buyer and the seller. So let's not forget that. Let's not lose sight of that. The principles are, in fact, the buyer and the seller. In any buy-sell arrangement, there's got to be a meeting of the minds. There absolutely has to be a meeting of the minds, which means that all parties must come to an agreement in order for a contract to be drafted and enforceable. All parties must come to an agreement. And you can't just sign a contract and then while you're signing the contract go, well, I don't like this, I'm not going to do it anyway. If you don't agree, stop what you're doing and don't sign the contract. It's that simple because once you sign the contract, you should be going into it with under, with, under, in good faith. So keep that in mind. Now, sometimes, and I think this is a good thing usually, buyers and sellers will seek advice from an attorney before signing an agreement. Frankly, I think it's a great way to do business if you've got a good attorney, that is. Now, understand, there are some incredible real estate attorneys. How do I know this? Because they're on my team. There are also some not-so-incredible real estate attorneys. How do I know this? Because the realtors on my team have beat them up. And we found out that there are, that, you know, apparently I don't, I happen to hire some good ones. And, you know, in the past I've hired some that aren't so good, but now I've got good ones, right? That's the thing is finding a good attorney. And a good attorney is asking a lot of questions. We'll cover that in a minute. But it's important to find a good lawyer that has experience with real estate transactions. Okay, don't hire your family law attorney. Don't hire your probate attorney or your personal injury attorney who's looking for work to represent you in a real estate transaction. Hire a real estate attorney, somebody that has experience, documented experience in real estate. Think, you know, say, how do you say it? How, how is it documented? Well, maybe I overspoke as far as documented, but realistically, they should be able to tell you that they've had extensive experience in real estate, closing real estate transactions. I would avoid hiring the guy or girl on their first day. It's like, I want to hire an attorney that's made a couple of mistakes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that people learn from their mistakes. And an attorney that can, can, is not afraid to admit they've made mistakes is definitely one I want on my team. Trust me, every attorney on my team, and I've got attorneys for different things, real estate, general counsel, I've got SEC, compliance, they've all made mistakes. And, and it's their candor, it's their ability to be relatable people that's the big reason why they're on my team. I'm certainly not shopping for attorneys by price. That I can assure you. Because, uh, you know, the cheapest game in town is definitely not what you want. That's for sure. Like I said, I believe having a real estate attorney is a smart way to do business. But sometimes, like I said, sometimes we run across attorneys that are closed-minded. Or they're suspect of everything that you encounter. You know, there's situations when these concerns do actually have a solid foundation. And that's usually more often than not. If an attorney's nervous, you should be too, generally, but it never hurts to get a second opinion. Just like a doctor, you go to the doctor, doctor talks to you and says, oh, geez, you know, I've never seen this before. Well, that should be a little concerning. Maybe you'd want to use an attorney or a doctor that has seen that before, so they're a little more prepared on how to deal with it. Short story, I went to a doctor and uh, when I broke my leg and he said, oh my God, I've never seen this bad in my life. And I thought, He's, I've never, I'm, I don't know what to do. I thought, well, that guy's not working on me. I can assure you that. I went to a different, uh, different doctor 
and that guy had me up and running in six months, no problem. Well, not necessarily running, but you know, unless something's on fire or I'm being chased, but still just the same. The first guy did not get my medical insurance guy's phone number. That's for sure. So as I was saying, there are situations where the lawyer may simply lack experience in whatever situation that you happen to be dealing with. Sometimes they provide advice based on the fear of the unknown, and you have to kind of think about the advice you're getting. Does this make good rational sense, or does it sound something far-fetched? Now, attorneys are supposed to be the smartest person in the room. At least that's what they get paid for, right? They're supposed to give us expert advice, but that's not always the case. I mean, let's be real. They're human, right? They're, they're, they're actually human. They don't have, like, superhero capes. You know, and they don't, they don't fly to work. Uh, well, some of them do, but they fly in helicopters or airplanes. But, you know, they don't put on a cape and a superhero outfit and go fly to fly to around the world or do whatever they got to do. They're real people. They make mistakes, okay? So when you get advice from an attorney that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense or if they're quick to judge, quick to judge, quick to make decisions without actually asking you any questions, that tells me that they probably don't fully understand the situation. And I've said this a hundred times. I learned this from, from Jay Massey. He says this. And he says a prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And that's fact. That's an absolute fact. A prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. So don't be out there making prescriptions there, Mr. Attorney, until you've heard me out. Hear the whole situation. This is why I stress how important it is to hire lawyers that are experienced in real estate transactions. Not attorneys based on fear of the, that are making decisions based on fear of the unknown. I want an attorney that has been through the ringer, has been through several real estate transactions. I don't need the guy or girls in their first day of real estate. I want somebody that's done 50, 60, 70 closings and, and made mistakes. Or like Sean Yesner, my attorney used to work for a foreclosure mill. He's been on both sides of, of, the, of the table. I'm representing the bank and the people not paying their bills. He's seen title issues. Heck. He's probably caused some of the title issues when he was a junior attorney working in the foreclosure mills, right? So he knows both sides of that equation. So he knows how to navigate those situations. So if I'm acquiring a piece of property that there's been a foreclosure on and there's a title hiccup, and if it, my, my title company, I deal with insured title, they, it's something they need an attorney to work through, they call Sean Yesner. So it seemed natural that when I needed a real estate attorney, I'm going to use who the title company relies on which in this case happens to be Sean Yesner. So it all worked across, it all worked uh, very well for us. But this is why I, I stress how important this is. A lawyer's job, ladies and gentlemen, is to help foster communication and agreement between parties. That's what it is. I, they may come up with some fancy mission statement or whatever they talk about in law school. I have no idea. I've never been to law school. I'm not an attorney. But a lawyer's job, and this is Tyler Sheff's opinion, a lawyer's job, is to help foster communication and agreement between the parties. Here's an example of that. There's been times I've gone to Sean Yesner, my real estate attorney, or, or uh, Cliff Hunt, my SEC attorney, wanting to absolutely strangle somebody. And they will sit me down and go, no, that doesn't make good sense, and here's why. And they settle me down. And then I go home with my tail between my legs after writing them a check. But that's time well spent. Now, a lot of attorneys would be like, sure, buddy, we'll go after him. Write us a check for 10 grand. Yeah, we'll win, wink, wink. Everything will go great. And I'm out 10 grand and then I lose, right? So 
got to take the advice of a good attorney, one that asks lots of questions and gets the whole scenario down. And that, in, in cases where that's, that's the case, my attorneys sit down and ask me lots of questions. They're not just barking out fact and fact and, and whatever they think. They're asking me a million questions, you know, before they make a decision and before they, they help give me advice. Remember, let's go back to that one more time. A lawyer's job, an attorney's job, is to help foster communication and agreement between the parties. Understand that they are not there to kill your deals. And most, a good attorney will tell you that. I'm not here to destroy your deal. The more, the, if you do a deal, I, I'm, I'm do better the more real estate you get. Because real estate, let's be honest, guys, has problems. Tenant evictions, things like that. And a real estate attorney doesn't want you swinging at the, for the fences and missing every time. They want you to have some real estate because they know that's a lot of future business for them if they're savvy, right? So they shouldn't be deal killers. And if you have an attorney that's a, that you feel is a deal killer, maybe it's prudent to seek a second opinion. Don't go, at, and I, when I say second opinion, I don't mean from some joker at the RIA meeting, from the guy doing Facebook Live. Don't send me, a, a, hey, Tyler, what do you think? Because I'm going to tell you, go hire, call an attorney and ask him. Go sign up for prepaid legal, whatever. Hire a real estate attorney. Hire an expert and take advice from them. And if you don't like the advice you're getting, ask for second opinion, just like a doctor. So we're talking about asking questions. The 70-30 rule applies here. You see, a lawyer should be listening 70% of the time. And they should be asking questions and giving advice 30% of the time. It's the asking of questions that helps a good lawyer achieve a full understanding of the situation at hand so they can help you by giving you good, solid advice. If they're yap, 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 and you can't get a word in edgewise, they're doing that prescription without diagnosis garbage. That's called malpractice. Now, my previous example, the attorney replied to the agent's inquiry with contracts for deed. Remember, the, the attorney was asked, they were tagged at the post. And this attorney, who's supposedly a good attorney, tags in and says, contracts for deed are rarely used. There is no advantage to them. That seems like it's somewhat arbitrary. I mean, not even really knowing anything besides three sentences. I think that's a little heavy-handed, in my opinion. In this case, I would probably not retain this attorney. That would be my decision. I would seek a second opinion. I, be I bet my attorney would probably have a different way of, of answering this question something a little more palatable, so to speak. But instead, he just laid it out like a judge. Yeah, there's no advantage to them. The end. Like, it's not up for discussion. Well, why? I want to know. Maybe it's because I challenge authority, but maybe that's why I got financially free, too, is that I don't agree with, I'm not going to just sign on board with whatever you think. I want to know why it is. Why you, do you feel there's no advantage? What about this? What about that? And then educate me. See, an attorney's job is to educate their client as well. And a lot of people forget that, especially attorneys. Don't just tell me no. That's what mom and dad used to do. But tell me why. My father would tell me, don't touch a hot pan when it's on the stove. And then explain, if you touch a hot pan on your stove, hot stuff's going to rain down on you, and you're not going to be as pretty as you are now. Joking. Well, not really. But seriously, when my parents told me not to do something, they, they would usually explain or give me some rational reason why. Tyler, don't go running across the street because the trucks will run you over. Oh, okay. So now I know. Don't go run across the street. You'll get hit, but don't go play with a BB gun because you'll shoot your eye out, right? Oh, I probably shouldn't play with a BB gun because it'll shoot my eye out. Don't just say don't play with a BB gun because I'm going to say why. What am I missing? 
Is there something cool? Is it awesome? Am I not? Am I not? Are you, are you ruining my fun? Next thing you know, I'm playing with a BB gun, and next thing you know, I shot my eye out. Right? I frankly found this answer that he gave to be shocking. I was completely taken back by it. I was like, unbelievable. How could this lawyer state that there is absolutely no advantage to them? Okay. Clearly, this lawyer has limited background in real estate investing. They may be a real estate attorney, which is the second piece of this. Just because they're experienced in real estate transactions doesn't necessarily mean they're experienced working with real estate investment transactions, which are a different breed. They are, folks. Let's just, let's just be honest. The, the investing transactions usually are more creative and therefore take a different breed of attorney. So make sure that attorney understands real estate investing and has a little bit of creativity. Okay. In this case, in this example, I feel a second opinion would definitely be prudent. I would definitely look at getting a second opinion. Here's the thing. Don't be afraid to question the opinion of attorney. After all, what, what you're paying for is just that, an opinion. It's a legal opinion. Lawyers are human, just like us. They make mistakes, just like us. And sometimes you have to check up on the advice they give. It's that simple. And sometimes, let's be honest, because they're human, because they make mistakes, Sometimes they're going to give bad advice. There's no insurance policy against bad advice, I hate to tell you. But the best thing you can do is get a second opinion. In a case like this where the answer simply is, seems to be fast, so to speak, where they haven't really taken in any information, where they've maybe given that prescription instead of uh, diagnosed the problem first, then I would definitely strongly consider you getting a second opinion. Now, this is a clear case, ladies and gentlemen, to wrap up, this is a clear case of where the real estate agent and the attorney clearly feared something that they don't understand. And that fear resulted in advice being provided to a seller that was fear-based advice. And that comes down to a lack of understanding. So do you see how fear can result in somebody giving you bad advice? Fear because based on nothing more than, I don't know. So I better poo-poo the idea because I don't know the answer. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Think about the advice you've been given, like when your friends and family say, you're never going to make it doing this, and nobody ever gets rich in real estate. And if you just flip a house, everything will be great. These people are giving answers, in some cases, based on fear. Other cases, based on ignorance. But be careful who you get your advice from. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. We're kicking off the mastermind. I'm excited about that. You want to take things to the next level. You got questions. You're, you ever get you get stuck. You need advice. Head on over to my, to my uh, Facebook community, cashflowguys.com forward slash group. That is the Cashflow Guys community on Facebook. Get over there. It's absolutely free of charge. You can ask questions. I got a lot of people that have been on the show there. Students of mine are on there. All kinds of good information there. Take advantage of it. It's there for you. It's absolutely free of charge. Go to cashflowguys.com forward slash group. Also, don't forget about Cashflow Guys TV. That's cashflowguys.com forward slash TV. That's Friday mornings at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. Friday mornings at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. Get over there, get registered, and take part in that. I want to thank you for coming out and spending some time with me today, and I hope you have a great week. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas so you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.